Good morning, Watermark. My name is Adam Torno. Excited to be with you guys here today. I uh, just wanted to let you guys know I am really excited about this upcoming week, and it's not just because it's Christmas. It's because three days after Christmas, my wife and I are going to be celebrating our 16th wedding anniversary. Yes, that's exciting. I think we got a picture here of us 16 years ago. That was us. It's funny how all the different services react differently. You guys were the most sincere. The nine o'clock, they just laughed at me, all right? So uh, I, we, that's like the only time we've ever been in that pose. That's not the way we hold hands out on a date night or anything like that. But uh, what you can't tell in that picture, though, is this, is that right there at that moment, my wife and I, we were in the midst of a financial crisis. At that moment, when that picture was taken 16 years ago, our combined net worth as a couple was a negative $120,000. We had very few assets and we had a whole lot of debt. In fact, the minimum payments on that debt was more than we were paying in rent for our little one bedroom apartment that we were about ready to share together. Now, it was not a uh, secret when we got married that that was our financial situation. That was not information that we shared with one another on the honeymoon of like, oh yeah, forgot to tell you, I got some debt, all right? That, That was all stuff that we had talked about. We knew that. Our friends knew that, our family knew that. Now, if you were gonna, though, back up 13 months earlier when I first met Jackie and we first started dating, would have I thought that's where we were gonna be if we got married? No, that's not what I would have expected was gonna be our financial situation. I had met Jackie, or I just moved, actually moved out here to Dallas a few months before I met Jackie. I moved out here to pursue a seminary degree because I thought I was gonna do this. I wanted to be a pastor. Uh, and so I was out here getting educated to be able to do that. Met Jackie, <clears throat> excuse me, met Jackie a few months after I moved out here and just knew a couple things about her financial situation. That's not stuff you usually share on the first or second date for anybody that's in here that's not married. Just not, not good to share all that stuff on first or second date. Wait till the third date before you share that kind of stuff. But anyway, so, but I did know one piece of information early in dating that I started to form some expectations. And the piece of information I knew was this, is that Jackie's full-time job, she was an attorney. Now, I don't know what you saw growing up or what kind of expectations you have when you hear somebody's an attorney, but when I grew up, my parents were big fans of the TV show L.A. Law, and I kind of watched some things there. I binged on some John Grisham novels, okay, Uh, when I was in college. I'd read The Firm. I started to develop some expectations of what the financial lifestyle was or the financial situation was of somebody who was an attorney. And so I don't know, you know, I'm sitting here as a seminary student and this relationship is progressing. And I just started to think, you know what, Lord, I I think this is the way life is supposed to work. You follow God's call on your life and you move halfway across the country and you go to seminary and you pursue a life of full-time ministry and God blesses you with a beautiful attorney wife. I thought I was living Psalm 37, four. I delighted myself in the Lord and he was giving me the desires of my heart. I did not know that I desired a sugar mama, but I was really okay. (laughs) I was okay with that. So that's all I knew, and then we start dating, and things are going better, and we're realizing, hey, I think this may be moving towards marriage, and so there's some conversations we need to have, and we knew we needed to talk more about our financial situation, and so I'll never forget that night when Jackie and I sat down to talk about it. I showed up over at the duplex that her and a friend were renting at the time and we sat on this green couch and I know where I was and I know where she was sitting and I was really excited about this conversation. I was like, I'll go first. Here's my financial situation. Uh, I've got about $20,000 in student loan debt. I've got no credit card debt. I've got a couple thousand dollars in my savings account. Uh, I tutor accounting part-time right now for an hourly rate and uh, I'm going to seminary and I'm gonna be a pastor and I have no clue what my financial future is going to look like. So that's me. What about you? 
And I was all excited to sit there and like just learn all the details about this life as an attorney. And she said, well, here's my income and I'm leasing my car and I've got no savings. I got a couple thousand dollars in credit card debt. And I was like, all right, hold on, let's go back to that income number. Um, I wanna make sure I understand that. that. Was that annual? Was that your annual income number? Is that, I, I was expecting that like, that's your bonus, right? On top of your other income. And she, come to find out, uh, she was working for a nonprofit and that's where she was practicing law. And then also come to find out that John Grisham writes fiction. <laughs> and she took a deep breath and she was like, but here's, here's the part I'm embarrassed to share with you. Right now, you know, where I went to undergrad and where I went to law school, I financed all of that. And so I've got $100,000 in student loan debt. And so there we were in that moment. I've got $20,000 in student loan debt. She's got $100,000 in student loan debt. And we had this, this just like our eyes were open that I thought she was gonna be sugar mama. She thought I was gonna be sugar daddy. And we're like, there's no sugar. There's no sugar right here. And so you know what we did? We got engaged. That's what we did. Now we started to talk about this and realize that, okay, we're gonna have to do something with this. And so we were a part of Watermark at this time. And uh, this was when Watermark was meeting over at Lake Highlands High School. And there's a ministry here at Watermark called MoneyWise, which teaches some of the basics of financial stewardship and uh, financial management. And so if you were in a situation like me and Jackie and you were kind of didn't know what to do, you could call up MoneyWise and they would meet with you. And so we called up and scheduled a meeting with somebody. And the gentleman that we met with was an elder at the time. His name was Kyle Thompson. And he was kind enough to meet with us. And I remember he sent this worksheet over to us and said, I want you to fill out some of this information that'll guide our conversation. And up at the top of that worksheet was, what are all your assets? And we just had a couple bullet points in there. And it says, what are all your liabilities? And we had a lot of bullet points in there. And it said, now take your assets and subtract your liabilities. This is your net worth. Remember how embarrassing that was to write down a negative $120,000. How embarrassing it was to slide that worksheet across the table to him. And he met with us one Sunday morning before church. And we shared our situation with him. And he was so kind and so encouraging and shared God's word with us. And he basically had one thing. He just said, hey, I, I think it's okay and it's fine for you all to get married. I wouldn't say this is a reason not to get married, but here's what you're gonna need to do. You're gonna need to get a plan. And so we left that meeting and we said, okay, here's our plan. Let's ignore it. And we executed it flawlessly for the first six months of our marriage. We just ignored it. This debt was there. He was like this sleeping giant in the corner of our very small apartment. And we did not want to wake him. And, but then after six months of being married, June 20th, 2004, we walk back into Lake Highlands High School and a gentleman gets on stage to preach that morning and it's Kyle Thompson. And he's preaching a message called Debt, a Biblical Perspective. And I remember Jackie and I, we were sitting right over here on this side of the auditorium and we were sitting next to one another and 27 minutes into that message, Kyle opened up and he turned to Proverbs 22.7 and he read this verse and it says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. And 27 minutes into that message, on June 20th, 2004, my wife and I sitting in this area of the auditorium over there, like our life changed with that. Some words were put onto all the emotions that we had been feeling. We had been feeling embarrassed. We had been feeling hopeless. And most of all, what we had been feeling is we had been feeling the effects of Proverbs 22.7. We were enslaved to this debt. And it was that morning when we said, okay, we need to do something about this. And we left that church service and we got in our car and we drove home and we had, what I can say now 16 years later, was one of the most significant conversations we ever had in our young marriage as we tried to come up with a plan. And I start with that story this morning for this reason is because I know 
how hopeless we felt back in 2004, buried under all of this debt. I I remember what that felt like. And I also remember how isolated we felt. How it felt like we were the only marriage that money was having a negative impact. We were the only people that were being impacted by this thing called money. And what I know now, I did not know then, what I know now 16 years later is that we are not the only marriage that was being negatively impacted by money. We were not the only individuals whose lives were being impacted by money. Every single one of us, regardless of where you are on the financial spectrum, money impacts all of us. And as we put a little period at the end of this volume of this is the life, I think it's really uh, apt that we're ending talking about this subject here this morning, that we're talking about money and possessions. Because here's what's true. What's true is this, is that money is powerful. And not many things in this life rob you of life more than an unhealthy relationship with money and possessions. And so that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. And I think this is an incredibly important message. And the reason why this is such an incredibly important message for us is this, is that I think a lot of us view our relationship with money and possessions the same way we view our driving skills. Is that we are the best driver we all know, are we not? The reason there's so many bad drivers out there is not because of us, it's because of the other people. Other people are bad drivers, so we grossly overestimate our ability to drive and we underestimate everybody else's ability to drive. We think everyone else is the one with the problem and I think we do the same thing when it comes to assessing our relationship with money and possessions. We think we're doing okay and everyone else is the one who has the issue. And I think the reason why we think we're doing okay is because we believe wrongly that numbers tell the whole story. And so if I were to ask you, hey, how's your relationship with money and possessions, you would just start to look at the numbers. You would just go, well, listen, I don't bounce any checks. I pay my credit card off every month and I don't have any uh, unusual amount of debt. I give a little bit, I save a little bit, my spending's under control. I'm not as rich as somebody else, but I'm not as poor as others and I'm just right there in the middle and I think I'm doing okay because we wrongly believe that numbers tell the story. And what we're gonna see this morning is that numbers do not tell the story. Because what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter six, verse 21, he said that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. What Jesus is telling us there is that a relationship with money and possessions is not a numbers issue, it's a heart issue. The numbers don't tell the whole story. How is your heart? Does money and possessions, or do money and possessions, do they have a grip on your heart? And so what I wanna do this morning as we wrap up this volume of This Is The Life is I just wanna ask you three questions. Three questions to examine your relationship with money and possessions. Three questions to examine your heart. And I want you to think about these individually. I want you to have a conversation with your spouse about these questions. I want you to talk to your friends and your community about these questions. I want you to wrestle with these questions and really examine your heart and try to take a sober view of whether or not your relationship with money and possessions is healthy or not. Now, I have to just time out here and just put a little sidebar on this because there's a word that I'm gonna use over and over again throughout the rest of this message. I've used it once before already since we've been talking here this morning and I need to define this word. It's kind of a churchy word that we don't use very often, but you're gonna hear me say it a lot of times as we continue on this morning. And the word is this, it's the word steward. I'm gonna say steward or stewardship or to be a faithful steward. And here's what a steward is. A steward is somebody who manages someone else's property 
but you manage that property not according to your own vision and values, but according to the owner's vision and values. That's what a steward is. And the reason I'm gonna use that word so often as we continue on and talk this morning is because that is the best way to describe from a biblical perspective what a healthy relationship with money and possessions looks like. Because scripture is clear from beginning to end and all the opportunities and all the, the, the passages that talk about money and God's word, and there are a lot of them, there's an underlying foundational principle in every single one of those passages, and it is this, is that God is the owner of everything, and therefore we are the stewards of what he owns. And you see this most clearly in 1 Chronicles 21, 29, verses 10 through 20. You see this in Psalm 24, 1. And so it is the mindset of somebody that wants to have a healthy relationship with money and possessions is you understand you are a steward, not an owner. God is the owner. We are to steward what he has given us, not according to our own vision and values, but according to his vision and values, okay? So time back in. Let's go. Here we go. First question. First question I want to ask you is this, is when managing your financial household, are you seeking to be diligent or are you negligent? When it comes to managing your own financial household, are you diligent in managing that household or are you negligent in managing that household? And let's look at our first proverb here, Proverbs 27, verses 23 and 24. Here's what the author says. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks and give careful attention to your herds. For riches do not endure forever and a crown is not secure for all generations. Now you may be sitting there going, Adam, I don't know where you live right now, but I don't live on a farm. Okay, I've got no flocks and I've got no herds. Help me connect the dots here. How does this help me or encourage me to be diligent? What we need to remember is that when most of scripture was written, the culture at that time, the economy at that time was primarily an agrarian economy. Most people were living on farms. Most people were, that's the way that that the Lord was providing for them so that they could provide for their own financial needs. And so when the author of Proverbs here is writing this down saying, be sure to know the condition of your flocks and give careful attention to your herds, what he is saying is this, keep your financial household in order because those flocks and those herds are how you are going to provide for yourself. And so you need to be diligent in managing those because if you're not, as it says in verse 24, riches do not endure forever. So be diligent in managing your financial household because if not, things can get out of control in a hurry. And you don't want things to get out of control. Life is hard enough as it is. You don't need your financial household to get out of control and bring even more pain and misery into your life. And so he is encouraging the listeners to be diligent in managing your financial household because if not, things can get out of control. And another reason why he's encouraging them to be diligent, which is what we just got done talking about, the theme that runs throughout all of scripture, is because those flocks and those herds, they're not yours. You are not the owner of those. And so be diligent in managing that property and those things that don't belong to you, that you are just stewarding. And so the first indication that we have a healthy relationship with money and possessions is this, is that our heart, our heart wants to manage our financial household with diligence, not with negligence. Wants to manage with diligence, not with negligence, because things can get out of control really, really easily. And I I wanna say this, I don't think it's gotten easier to manage your financial household. It may be easier now to to not live in an agrarian culture where we're having to manage flocks and herds and crops and all that kind of stuff, but there still is a challenge today living in 2019 to be diligent with our financial household. And that's because our economy now, maybe it's not agrarian, but our economy now 
has all this digital cash. We just don't see cash anymore that much, right? Things just get direct deposited into your checking account and you've got debit cards and you've got credit cards and you've got Venmo and PayPal and Apple Pay. We're just not holding on to cash anymore, which means these transactions are just flying all over the place and it is really, really difficult to manage all of those transactions. And now when we're out there and we're spending or we have all these transactions, we don't even have the same emotions anymore that we used to when we used to have cash. I was even thinking about this, about what life was like for me when I was about 13, 14, 15 years old and I started earning money. I was mowing yards in my uh, neighborhood. I was paid in cash. And I would take that cash and I would put it in my wallet. And the more cash that I had, the, the fatter my wallet got. And so for me, all I had to do to be diligent to manage my financial household was just not lose my wallet. That's all I had to do. In every financial transaction, there was an emotion attached to that cash. If I went to the baseball card shop and bought some baseball cards and I took a $20 bill out, that hurt. Like I felt that emotion of taking that out and seeing the wallet get thinner and put that transaction over there, put that money over there and watching it change. There was emotion attached to those transactions and it was so much easier to track it all. And nowadays in this digital cash economy that we live in, we don't even feel that same sense of remorse when, like we do when we're handing over cash. I was just trying to think about what I do feel when I go out and have some transactions nowadays and I'm using my debit card or my credit card. I do have some emotion, but the emotion that I feel when I use my debit or credit card is this, I just feel annoyed. Because that chip reader still takes a long time. (laughs) And then when it's done with you, it gets all temperamental and mad and just starts beeping at you, like, get it out, get it out, get it out. And it just throws me off. and, And so I just feel annoyed. You know the other emotion that I feel when I go out there now in this digital cash economy? When I spend, it's crazy, I feel like I'm earning. Think about what a Jedi mind trick the credit card companies have played on us. They have gotten us to the point where we feel like spending is earning. Somehow, they've gotten us to believe that points are more valuable than dollars. So you'll go spend 500 bucks and you'll be like, yeah, that's 500 bucks, but it's one and a half times the points. I think I'm I'm winning in this transaction. I just want to remind you, we all need this reminder. Spending is not earning. Spending is spending. And in this culture that we live in with digital cash and these financial transactions that are flying around all over the place, things can quickly get out of control. We need this reminder that our riches do not endure forever, which is why British psychologists have declared that the most depressing day of the year is January 24th. There's a lot of factors that go into that, but one of the primary factors as to why January 24th is the most depressing day of the year because that's when the credit card statements for Christmas start to show up. And there's a lot of us in this room that January 24th is gonna happen and you're gonna get that alert that your credit card statement is due and you're gonna open that up and you're gonna look at it and you're gonna be like, whoa, it did not feel like I was spending that much. Things got out of control quickly. And so we need this reminder that when it comes to managing our financial household, we need this reminder to be diligent, to be diligent. And the reason we need to be diligent is because riches don't endure forever. Things can get crazy in a hurry. And so you may be thinking, all right, well, what's a really practical way that I can be diligent? And I think it's this, it's not rocket science, it's just just budgeting and tracking. 
Do you have a spending plan and do you track your expenses? Do you have a spending plan and then do you track your expenses and do you compare them to the spending plan? That's, that's just the basic blocking and tackling of being diligent. And you, you have a spending plan and you track expenses not to be a nerd. You do it to be diligent. To sit there and go, I don't wanna be negligent here. I just know that things can get crazy in a hurry, so I wanna be diligent, and so I'm gonna gonna have a plan and I'm gonna track. But the other reason, and we need to seek to be diligent, is the other reason that this was written is because it's not our money. It's not ours. And if we're not diligent to track that and we're not diligent to to manage that financial household, then we are being negligent with somebody's resources, with somebody else's resources. And you may be sitting there and you're going, Adam, I think I do good enough with all of this. I mean, I I log on to my bank app a couple of times a month. I look at the credit card thing. Again, I don't bounce any checks and I pay it all off. I'm doing fine. I don't know if I need to set a spending plan. I mean, the numbers are all working out and I just wanna be a friend and just go, I think that's negligent when it's not yours. I don't think good enough is just good enough. I don't think okay is just okay. That would be just like if you, those of us that are parents, we take our kids into the kids ministry today. And you walk back there and you drop your kid off and you show up to the classroom and there's that little half door and you look in and you just see chaos ruling in that, in that classroom. I mean, you see kids being body slammed. You look over in the corner, it looks like there's some kids gambling, they're rolling dice. <laughs> they're exchanging Lego minifigures back and forth, right? And you're looking around, you're going, where's the adult? Who's bringing order into this chaos? And you see over in the corner, that's where the adults are and they seem to be huddled around an iPhone and they're laughing at Baby Yoda memes or something like that or playing Clash of Clans or something. And you're like, hey, there's chaos reigning over here. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. We got it. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm about to drop my kid off here. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll we'll keep him alive. (laughs) That would not make you feel comfortable. You'd be like, listen, I don't know what kind of circus you run at your house, but I want you. You don't own this child. This is my kid. And I don't want you to be negligent when my kid is in there. I want you to be diligent. So in the same way, we need this reminder that if we want to have a healthy relationship with money and possessions, our heart will understand that we need to be diligent, not to be nerdy, but because we want to be a faithful steward, because it's not our money. So that's the first question. Do you seek to be diligent or are you negligent? Second question, let me ask this question. Do you view generosity as a blessing or as a burden? You view generosity as a blessing or as a burden. Let's go back to the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 25 says this. One person gives freely and yet gains even more. Another person withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. This is what I love about the Proverbs, this comparing and contrasting. And you would expect that if you give that something else would be going away. And that's not at all what the author is saying here. It's like, listen, in God's economy, the numbers, they, they just they don't even add up. It, 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 like it functions completely different. We're saying here, one person gives freely and they gain something. A generous person prospers when you refresh others, you too will be refreshed. And just to be really clear here, What the author is not saying is that when you give, you get more money back. This is not talking about money here. It's talking about when you give, you get something back that's more valuable than money. 
the blessing of generosity, knowing that you were used by God to help meet the needs of other people. And so if your relationship with money and possessions is healthy, you will not only seek to be diligent, but you will understand that generosity is a blessing, it is not a burden. It's a blessing, not a burden. I used to, uh, I've been on staff now about 10 years and had an opportunity to lead MoneyWise for a couple of years. And I'll never forget that as MoneyWise, I got this question over and over and over again when I would teach different classes there. And the question was always this. It was, Adam, how much should I give? Like, will you just tell me how much should I give? And I understand the question, and I always tried to answer the question the exact same way, which is I understand why you're asking that question, but I think that's kind of the wrong question. Because imagine if when I got back from my honeymoon, I sat my wife down and I just said, okay, now we're back, we're getting ready to build our life together. I've got one question. How much do I need to talk to you every day? <laughs> Will you just give me a number? I just, just give me, is it 10 minutes? Is it 15 minutes? Is it different on the weekends than it is during the week? Because I got stuff I wanna do, okay? I got kind of like, I got a life I wanna live right now. And so if you'll just let me know where the bare minimum is that you're happy so I can get on with my life, then that would be great. No, if I had that conversation with Jackie, I'd be like, no, that's, that's not the right question to ask. In the same way, when it comes to finances, that's not the right question to ask when it comes to generosity. It's not, there's no box to check. And scripture doesn't tell us how much to give. Scripture tells us how to give. Not how much to give, but how to give. And scripture also gives us an amazing example to inspire us to give. But let's look at this how to give. I mean, there's so many passages I could go to. I'll go to one of my favorites here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Here's what he says. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. I love that. Paul is not telling us here how much to give. He was not telling the, the, the church in Corinth how much to give. He was saying, here's how to give. Here's how to be generous. You wanna know how to do it? Do it thoughtfully. Do it deliberately. Don't do it under compulsion or because you feel uh, guilty. And do it with great joy understanding that God has got you and that when you give, it's a perfect transaction and those, those gifts, they endure forever and so do it generously. He's teaching us how to give here. And in all those conversations that I had with people at MoneyWise, I, I never, or I rarely met people who didn't want to give. Most people want to be generous. But at the same time, there's this disconnect between the desire to be generous and then acting out in generosity. And that, that mismatch, no, it just it knows no bounds. I mean, it could be anybody, regardless of where you are in your relationship with God. When I talked to members, there was often a mismatch between members of just going, hey, here's what I've agreed to, even being a member here at Watermark, and what I've said on how I'm gonna be generous, and then what I'm, at, excuse me, what I'm actually doing, there's a mismatch between those people who claim to follow Christ and people who, who were just exploring the faith. There is a desire in many people to be generous, but there is just not always action there. And I think the reason why 
There's not always action there. It's because our, just our values are just all mixed up. Our values are all mixed up, and there's such a great example of this that we've seen just recently, like right around Thanksgiving. We see this thing in our culture, and I don't know if you see this, but we see this thing in our culture that right after Thanksgiving, there's this big other holiday that happens right after Thanksgiving on the very next day. What is it? It's Black Friday. You have Black Friday, and then you have Small Business Saturday. Then you get a day off on Sunday, and then you get to go waste time at work on Monday, and you have Cyber Monday, and then what happens on Tuesday over the last four, five, six, seven years, there's now Giving Tuesday shows up on Tuesday. So if you have anything left over after spending on Friday, Saturday, taking a break on Sunday, and then on Monday, whatever you have left over, be generous. I think for so many of us, there's just that mismatch in what we want to do and what we actually do because we don't have the right plan and we're just not thinking through it the right way. Our values are out of whack. That was essentially my giving strategy when I, shortly after I became a Christian in college, I started to read God's word and my heart started to be stirred by passages like 2 Corinthians chapter nine. And I'd never been uh, consistently generous at this point in my life ever as a young, you know, 20-year-old that started following Jesus. And so I developed what I thought was the most generous plan, giving plan I could ever come up with. And I had this agreement with God. And I said, God, here's what's going to happen. You know, every Friday, Friday, I go to the ATM machine and I get my cash out for the week, for the weekend. And I, whatever I have left over when I walk into church on Sunday, that's yours. All right. And so I would have Friday night to spend and have fun. I'd have all day Saturday and Saturday night. I had all day Sunday because my church met on Sunday night. I had all day Sunday to go and have fun. And whatever I had left in my pocket when I walked in there on Sunday evening, that's what I give to the Lord. Oftentimes it was nothing. Sometimes it was one, two, three dollars. I will never forget the day I walked in there and I had a five dollar bill in my pocket and I had never given five dollars to anyone at any time. And I walked in there in the back of our church where we met. It was a shoebox with a hole cut out on top of it. And I remember walking in there with that $5 bill going, oh my gosh, like, is it bad to make change in this thing right now? Is that, is anybody looking? Can I do that? I just took that $5 bill out and was like, Lord, we got a deal. You're welcome. Drop that $5 bill in there. It's like, that just happened, right? Totally expected to show up the next day, have the building named after me or something like that. My values were out of whack. They just were out of whack. I had a desire to give, but I just... I was giving what was left over. And so oftentimes what's left over is not much. And I think if we want to start to shore up that gap between our desires and what we actually do, if we want our heart to change in this and understanding that generosity is a blessing, not a burden, then what we need to do is we need to raise the value of generosity in our life. And I want to be really clear. When it comes to finances, our values are vertical. They are. There's always a vertical list of values. There's a number one, number two, number three, and it just keeps going right on down the list. I mean, the typical household values look something like this. You have your income, and you're gonna pay for your housing, and then transportation, then food, clothing. You're gonna have fun. If there's any left over, you're gonna save a little, maybe invest, and then generosity. And what Paul is encouraging us to do with the Proverbs and Proverbs 11 are encouraging us to do, what Proverbs 3, 9 is encouraging us to do when it says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. What they're challenging us to do is this, is to raise the value of generosity, is to let it just go, all right, Lord, here's what I wanna do. I want to give first, 
and then live off whatever's left. And recognizing that there may be things that I could do that I'm not gonna do because I've chosen to view generosity as a blessing, not as a burden. And I'm gonna do it joyfully because I trust your word that when I do that, I'm gonna get something back that's better than anything I could buy, any restaurant I could eat in, or any vacation I could go on. So a healthy relationship with money and possessions is going to view that generosity as a blessing, not as a burden. And so scripture tells us how that we are to give, but you know what else scripture does? It provides with us with an example, an example to motivate us to be more generous. Because let's be honest, sometimes we just need to see it. We just need to see an example of sacrifice. We need to see an example of generosity to go, okay, that's what I want to do. And again, when I think about this, there's this other thing going on in the culture right, excuse me, right now that I think of that again came out around Christmas time, or excuse me, around Thanksgiving when Disney Plus came out. So Disney Plus came out and they've got this television show on Disney Plus called The Mandalorian. And we have been introduced to quite possibly the greatest Star Wars character ever in The Mandalorian. And we know him as Baby Yoda, right? I got a picture here. Baby Yoda. It's adorable. And I'm not giving too much away here on the plot line, but Baby Yoda, the plot line of this television show is that Baby Yoda is in danger and The Mandalorian has been moved to sacrifice to save Baby Yoda. And so he is sacrificing. And what I find so funny is now the internet is just going crazy over Baby Yoda and going crazy over the Mandalorian sacrifice. And they're going, I want a piece of that, right? I want to live a sacrificial life like the Mandalorian is. And so they're going to the internet and they're just uh, like confessing their undying love and devotion for Baby Yoda and what they would do to sacrifice for Baby Yoda. These are real tweets from real humans, okay? This is at Jack J. This is what he said. I would actually take a bullet for Baby Yoda, (laughs) even though he could stop it via the force. (laughs) Neela Davies, this is what he said. He said, I've got a very little boy whom I love with everything inside me, but I would push that child to the curb (laughs) to protect Baby Yoda. Right, they saw this example and they're like, I want some of that. Okay, I see what sacrifice and generosity looks like and now I want to live and I want to be that way. And sometimes, it's just an example, sometimes we just need to see it. That's why we open up God's word and we try to read it and devote daily in our relationship with the Lord because buried in there is just example after example after example of generosity. This season that we're celebrating right now at Christmas is one of the most amazing examples of generosity in the life of just the life of Jesus. He came from heaven to earth. And he came from heaven to earth because he saw that you and I had a debt that we could not pay. And if you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and you read the stories of Jesus, and you just realize how generous he was with his time, how generous he was with his wisdom and his knowledge, how generous he was with his gifts, and how ultimately generous he was with his life to hang on the cross as payment for our sins. He paid our debt. And you start to understand what Paul meant here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... In view of Jesus' life, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see the example of Jesus and it motivates you to live generously. So our hearts, our hearts seek to be generous 
We have a healthy relationship with money and possessions when we view generosity as a blessing, not as a burden. And we seek to be diligent because we know this isn't our stuff. There's one last question I just wanna ask you to wrestle with is this, and the question is this. Do you see financial independence as a condition of the heart or as an accumulation of wealth? When you hear that word, financial independence, or that phrase, financial independence, what pops into your mind? Do you think of financial independence as an accumulation of wealth? Because that's what often pops into my mind when I think of financial independence, that you get so much money saved up or invested that you no longer have to work another day at all in your life. And suddenly, because you work so hard, suddenly life now gets to be just all about you, and you get to do whatever you want. And that message of financial independence where you work hard, you save up, and then one day you don't have to work anymore and life gets to be all about you, that message is all over in our culture. And there are investment firms and there are financial planners that are trying to sell you that is the dream come true where life suddenly gets to be all about you. We've seen those commercials and we've dreamed about what that life would look like. I mean, just think about it. We've seen the commercials, right? We wake up in the morning, you play doubles tennis with your spouse. You have lunch at the club. In the afternoon, you paint some furniture. You watch the sunset on a wooden rowboat in the middle of this serene lake. You do some ballroom dancing at night. And if you're sitting there going, hold on, I think I've seen that. You're right. I just described a Cialis commercial. When you think of financial independence, if that's what you think of, you think, I'm just gonna go out there and that's my goal is to accumulate enough so that life can just be about me and I can do whatever I want. I just wanna let you know that if that's your goal, if you, you go after that, that, you're not gonna be happy with those results. And the primary reason you're gonna be left wanting if you make that your goal in life and that's the way you view financial independence, the primary reason you're gonna be left wanting is because like life never works out that way. It never works out the way the commercials show. I, I wanna break this to you. Those commercials, they're full of actors. Those are actors. It never works out that way. You know what those commercials are? They're financial pornography. That's what they are. They are these images that we put before our eyes that do something to our heart and our desires and it makes us wanna act on it. And if you set those images before your eyes over and over and over again, and you believe that is the dream come true, that one day you'll have enough in the bank and life gets to be all about you, you're gonna be left wanting. You're gonna be really disappointed. Now, scripture does talk about financial independence. But when it talks about financial independence, it doesn't talk about it as an accumulation of wealth where suddenly life gets to be about you. When it talks about financial independence, it talks about it as a condition of the heart a heart that is free from the grip and the love of money. That's financial independence. That's the financial independence that is the dream come true. A heart that isn't ruled by the desire and the love of money. Let's look at it here in scripture, Proverbs 30, verses seven through nine. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. 
and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I want to be really clear here with the author of Proverbs 30 is not saying, is not talking about numbers here. It is not saying the goal in life or the spiritual, the most spiritual class in life is the middle class. It's not a numbers issue. What the author is talking about here is a condition of the heart. He's saying, Lord, don't give me so much that my heart is so gripped by what I have and what you've given to me that I'm, I'm, I'm pulled away from that and I forget who you are. And don't give me so little that my heart is gripped by that survival where I just, my heart is pulled away. What he wants here and what he's asking God to give him is financial independence and that is a heart that is not gripped by the love of money. And I cannot read this passage enough. My heart needs to be reminded of that. And I need to be reminded of that over and over and over again because candidly, you know where my heart wants? My heart wants there to be a loophole in this life. I want there to be a loophole. I want there to be a loophole where you can love God and love money. That's what I want. I wanna be able to love God and love his word and share it and be about his business and be fully devoted to him. But I also, I also really wanna love money. And I think some of the reasons that my heart is so drawn to try to find this loophole is definitely because of some of the images, the financial pornography that I put before my eyes. But the other reason why I think there's this loophole and why I want there to be a loophole is because I think I meet people who have found it. I have friends relationships with people, friendships with people. And I meet these people and I'm so impressed by their spiritual maturity. Man, you really seem to love God. You love his word. You wanna be fully devoted. You disciple, you have such a maturity about you. You really seem to love God. And then I look also at other parts of your life and you look like you're loaded too. You take different vacations that I do. Your house looks different. You drive different cars. You wear different clothes. You eat at different restaurants. I think you found the loophole, and I want it too. And what we need to be reminded of, and what I need to be reminded of is this, is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There is no loophole. There's no loophole. And if you think you see that loophole on a commercial or if you meet somebody and you think that person is living in the loophole, what that means is this, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Either that person is fooling you to believe that they love God and really they just love money but what I think is really going on, the illusion is they don't love money. They just love God. They just love God. And God and his sovereignty has decided to entrust them with more to steward than maybe he's entrusted me. But that person's job and my job are the exact same. It's to have a heart that is free from the love of money to get to know God, to get to know the owner, and to faithfully steward whatever it is that he's given us. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. And so you and I, if we wanna have a healthy relationship with money and possessions, we've gotta be diligent because it's not ours. 
have the heart that understands that generosity is a blessing, it is not a burden, and have a heart that desires to be financially free from the grip of money on our life. When we do that, we're gonna find life. So that June 2004, my wife and I, we get in the car and we drive home and we just say, we've gotta do something to get out of this prison. And so we open up Microsoft Excel and I start running some numbers and go, what if I dropped out of seminary? And what if, Jackie, you got a new job? And what if we threw this much at the debt? And we came up with a bunch of different scenarios and we gathered some friends around. We met in the living room and we presented all these options. Option one, I drop out of seminary. I go back into accounting. Jackie looks for a new job. Option two, we just... I finish up seminary and then we deal with it when I'm done. Option three, we hope we got some long lost relatives that we don't know about that are gonna die soon and leave us some money. And our friends looked and said, listen, if you're willing to make those changes and do that option one, if you're willing to do that, I think that's the best option. So we said, great, that's our plan. And so by the grace of God, I was able to get a new job in accounting and Jackie was able to leave the nonprofit world and she got a job. She went from being an attorney to being a legal secretary, but it paid more money and that's what we wanted. And in November 2004, we made our first aggressive debt payment. And then in March 2008, we made our last aggressive debt payment. It's one of the few things in this world for us that has ever gone better than what we planned. We thought it was gonna take about five years and it took a little less than four. And I'll never forget the emotion that we felt that November 2004, when our net worth was negative $120,000, it felt like I was throwing a nickel at a million dollar problem with that first aggressive debt payment. It still felt harrowing. And I'll never forget that emotion that we felt in March 2008 when we made that last debt payment when our net worth was now zero. And it never felt so good to be worthless. <laughs> so I don't know where you are this morning, where you are on the spectrum. If you're like me and Jackie and you feel like you're buried in debt, and maybe you don't know how to get out of that, and maybe one of your first steps would be what Jackie and I's first step was, was to reach out to MoneyWise and meet with somebody or take the class in February. It's in your Watermark News to talk about that. Or I don't know if you're on the other side of the spectrum where God has entrusted you with much, but wherever you are, I know this, is that you cannot ignore money. It will impact your life. Money is not a source of life, but it can ruin your life. And our job is to be a faithful steward of whatever it is that God has entrusted to us. We seek to be diligent, we seek to be generous, and we seek to be free. And when we do that, like with all the topics we've talked about in the This Is The Life series, we find life as God intends. And so let me pray that we will live that way. And so Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have paid our debt for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given so freely to us. We thank you that Jesus came down to teach us about you and to provide a way to you. And we thank you, God, that you want us to experience life and we need help. We are so lured by the world's advertisements and our hearts are so enticed to wanna to try to find this loophole and we just need your help. So God, I pray that you will help us to be diligent in following after you. And that you will keep our hearts free from the love of money so that we can follow you and find life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.